Welcome to Teaching Artist Podcast, a show dedicated to discussions of teaching art to kids, making art, and how those things overlap and feed each other. I'm Rebecca Potts, your host, a visual arts teaching artist. Before we dive into this week's episode, I just wanted to say thank you to the artists who submitted work to our spring show at Play Plus Inspire Gallery. Maria and I had such a hard time selecting work for the show because we were so impressed with so much of the work. We are a bit behind in getting feedback out to artists, but we're working on it, I promise. We wanted to share thoughtful feedback with every artist, so we've been taking our time to do that while we both also continue to juggle our own teaching jobs, parenting, and our art practices. We're also pulling together the show to open April 23rd. We'll be sharing more very soon, so stay tuned. I also wanted to share that I was on another podcast sharing a bit of the behind the scenes here. Meredith Reed interviewed me on Asa Lounge Live about starting this podcast. It's a short and sweet conversation that you can catch wherever you get your podcasts or see on Instagram Live at Asa Collective, and that's O-S-S-A Collective. Each week, I'm sharing a featured artist as well as a guest interview. I'll share a bit about the featured artist here, as well as sharing images of their work on Instagram and on the website. Our featured artist this week is Labdi Shah. Labdi is an artist based in Ahmedabad, India. Trained as an economist, clinical psychologist, and art therapist, she is a self-taught artist. She specializes in finger-painted artworks created from intuition without any reference or pre-sketch, distilling the purest expression of her emotion into her art. Art seeks to convey the truth of the human experience in all its complexity. Her effort as an artist is to share the faith she has in the capacity of love and to accept the uniqueness of every human being, irrespective of race, color, gender, and culture. She works with a variety of media, including watercolor, acrylic, charcoal, and ink, and enjoys the uniqueness of each medium. Her work has been featured in art publications around the world, including Curious Publishing, Detester Magazine, Porridge Magazine, Postscript Magazine, and Copper Magazine. Her recent participatory art installation on the theme of love, titled Rainbow of Emotions, was featured at the Abhivakti Art Festival in 2020. Her work was on view at the recent virtual exhibition Collective Impact, hosted by Ikui in Atlanta, Georgia, at virtual exhibitions hosted by Las Laguna Gallery, Student Art Spaces, and again by Ikui. Her work was also in Hope Revolution at Stay Home Gallery in Paris, Tennessee. Her passions include traveling and studying human complexity. From Labdi's artist statement, she says, witnessing change during this pandemic has been as commonplace as breathing. What we had taken for granted as an integral part of our lives has been overturned. This pandemic has brought about a shift in a mindset of every single individual and made them look inwards to seek change and collectively work to create a space which is fruitful, not just for them, but for others also. I am not coping with change, but for the very first time, I have started walking with change, as somebody would walk with their shadows. I have begun to see that it is not different from oneself, but a very crucial part of oneself, without which one's reflection would not be visible. During this period, the way I sought to bring about change was by working on my own self and my own insecurities with full honesty to emerge as a butterfly from the cocoon and share that joy through my art, the only way that I could tell the truth about how I felt. I believe that anything shared truthfully has the power to touch another person's heart. Ah, beautiful. And she also says about the specific work that we are sharing, 
I wanted to express my mental state in this pandemic through my work. Coincidentally, the day I painted this, my partner was reading to me an essay by James Baldwin about the creative process of an artist, which talked about the state of aloneness that an artist must cultivate. With this work of mine, I wanted to convey that isolation is neither dark nor lonely. There is reality, which I accept, that the pandemic has created a dark hole, but the color of your spirit can never fade when you are at your most natural and true form. And you can see more of her work on Instagram at gallery.lab26. And we will also be sharing on our Instagram and on our website at teachingartistpodcast.com. And if you would like to be featured, you can submit your work at teachingartistpodcast.com slash opportunities. Judy Richardson is a sculptor living and working in the high desert mountains of Magdalena, New Mexico, recently transplanted from Brooklyn, New York. Her work is assembled and cobbled together with many dissimilar materials and inspired by many different sources, from the political to the personal. She is a former scenic artist for the San Francisco Opera, which had an enormous effect on her work. Judy's work was included in the Spring Break Art Fair in New York this past spring. For many years, she showed her work with Ivan Karp at O.K. Harris Works of Art in New York. She is a 2013 recipient of the Pollock Krasner Foundation grant and has had a number of artist residencies from Roswell, New Mexico to the Vermont Studio Center to the Dune Shack of Cape Cod to Cochabamba, Bolivia to Mesa Verde, Colorado. Judy is paying a lot of attention to the wind, the grass, and the bosque these days, making work that reflects their forces. Judy talked about her work in scenic design before getting into teaching. She shared how teaching began as a necessity, a job that would allow her to bring her daughter and fit in with being a single parent. It was so helpful to hear about her experiences in New York and how she's built relationships with curators, gallerists, and fellow artists over many years. We talk on this podcast a lot about building relationships with our students, but the same idea applies to all of the relationships in our lives. I love seeing how Judy's work has changed as her location changes and hearing about her process of selecting and handling materials. She talked about the way the materials drive her work and the meanings they hold. In talking about her shift from New York to New Mexico, in her artist statement, she says, In the city, I made my work from discarded materials that I transformed into objects or installations about emotional and political situations. It was all about people and their stuff. Here in the high desert mountains, humans are a minor component. Now I'm working on pieces about forces like grass, wind, survival with very little water, and a land that used to be the bottom of the ocean floor. Dramatic geology lessons present themselves to me every day in person. My discarded materials have become bark, wood, reeds, plants, and birds that couldn't fly. I still believe in the wonders of the everyday and the importance of learning about the structures and systems of things right around me. In making work, I adhere to the mark of the human hand and the beauty of human error. Ah, I love that. Okay, let's hear from Judy. I am speaking with Judy Richardson today, and I always like to start just with your background. Could you share your journey with us? How did you become an artist? And then also, how did you get into teaching? Well, I was always an artist. I always loved making things from the time I was a little kid. But when I went to college, I thought, oh, I can't do that. I'm not going to make any money. So I'll go do something more practical. I wasn't really sure what. So I went to NYU my first year of college. It was the, totally the wrong place for me. And uh, I had a printmaking teacher who at one point said, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be in art school, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh. 
So I left there after a year and I went to Kansas City Art Institute, which is a fantastic school. I wound up in sculpture and I was also thinking, oh, do something practical, be, you know, a weaver or something. And I, I spent just a few weeks in the fiber department. I thought, oh, no, this is this isn't it. So I went into sculpture and it's got a famous sculpture department, a really strong, crazy work ethic. Like if you weren't there from eight in the morning until midnight, the chairperson would not speak to you. So that gave me a lot of, really a lot of experience in making all kinds of things. So when I got out of there, I a bunch of us moved to Houston. It was supposed to be a good place for artists at that time, a lot of money for public art. That was a bad place for me too, but I, I got a job working in a, a scenery shop building scenery for Miami Grand Opera and Houston Opera. And then I learned a lot more about how to make things. And I was a good welder. So even though I was a terrible carpenter, they (laughs) kept me because I was a good welder. Mm -hmm. And I didn't go back to school for years. I I wound up working for the San Francisco Opera, making scenery for them. I worked in a shop that did a lot of rock and roll shows south of San Francisco. I worked on a bunch of commercials and movies. I built the peaches for James the Giant Peach. I don't know if you saw that movie but wow I made those and uh, anyway everything was cool about that until I became a single parent and then Mm -hmm. it was just not the wrong job because it was too many hours away from my little daughter so that's when I started teaching Mm -hmm. I invented a job where I could bring her I invented an after-school art program at her school I had no teaching experience at all but when I was on unemployment from the movie I went into her elementary school as a volunteer and I did art projects with all the different grades just to sort of learn something about how to do it. And then I thought, well, what do they need here? And they had the one really bad after school program and all the kids hated it. It was really just a way for the teachers to make some extra money. So I thought, well, they need something more fun than this. So I proposed an after school art program to the principal and he was a fantastic principal. He goes, yeah, sure. That sounds good. Yeah. Just go find a nonprofit sponsor and we'll let you do it. So that's when I started teaching. I brought her with me as my little assistant. She was at that time, she was in fourth grade and she worked with me. Amazing. Yeah. I love that creating that sort of out of necessity and also seeing a need at her school. Totally. And the kids loved it. And I had the same kids year after year, you know, semester after semester. Mm. I had the same kids from first grade all the way through their fifth or I think at the time it ended in sixth grade and then it ended at fifth. But and then I said, I didn't want littler kids. But I had somebody hit me up like, could you think my daughter could come because her older sisters in your program. I said, well, okay, we'll try it. And then I let kindergartners start coming if they had a sibling because the sibling kind of looked after them. Like I didn't want, I didn't want to have to be you know, the mommy too much. I wanted kids who were artists and they were, and they just got better and better over. They came to my program for years. Amazing. Yeah, I did that. And then one of the parents of one of the students decided that it would be good to start a program in the school that would have a few different fun classes, you know, based on my model. And so she started this little, you know, school-wide after-school program, like science and cooking, something and something, a couple little things. And then the school decided that was such a good idea that they would start a much bigger program like that. And they hired me to be the director of it since I Mm -hmm. had that track record. I offered over 50 different classes a week after school for it was 250 families were participating in it. And it was a tuition based program, but it was it was so inexpensive. It was less than hiring a babysitter for Mm -hmm. your kids. So that was a really great program because the teachers in the school all wanted to work in it because then they got to teach things that they never had time to do during the day. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever their love was, they didn't have time to do that during their normal teaching day. And then anybody, any classes I wanted to have where nobody knew how to do that in the staff, I hired teaching artists to come in and do, you know, African dance and some special stuff that the teachers didn't have experience with. So that's, that's really how I met teaching artists and understood what that was. I was hiring them Mm -hmm. and the program was like super successful and everybody completely loved it. It it was mainly that because the school was in downtown Brooklyn, public school, a lot of the parents were single mothers who worked in the city government, which was close by. Mm -hmm. So they put their kids in that school so they would be near them 
you know, during the day, they wouldn't be like way out in their neighborhood somewhere. So those parents had no choice but to put their kids in after school. Mm -hmm. You know, well, I mean, there were kids in that neighborhood who had like their piano lessons and their ballet lessons. And then they'd come to the school after school for the special science class or the special comic book making class. But most of our target audience were parents who had absolutely no choice about picking their kids up anytime before six o'clock. Right. So that's who we targeted the program for. We got rid of all the materials fees, like no, just incorporate everything so that it was, you know, same price across the board for everybody. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't like kids who could afford the better class. You know, it wasn't like that. We stopped doing that. That was how they originally started. But I said no. So Mm. anyway, it was a really fantastic program and it lasted for about four years and a new principal came in and very unfortunate circumstances shut it down because she realized that the the program was more popular than she was. (laughs) She Uh. (laughs) she shut it down. And anyway, that's when I became a teaching artist. I'm like, well, I don't have that job anymore. I Mm. I had college teaching gigs, but that's when I started being a teaching artist myself because then I knew all those people and the companies they worked for. Right. So at the same time, you were starting to adjunct for some of the colleges, and then you were also teaching for several of the organizations in New York. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I had been working as an adjunct before that during my mm-hmm. own after school program, but then I just had to, you know, I had to do something. So I was always a practicing artist and had mm-hmm. my studio practice going and had a lot of good luck, you know, some bad luck, but a pretty good run. I'm still doing that. But yeah, I just had to, had to make money somehow and had to do it in jobs where it wasn't going to have a big impact on my, my parenting since I was the only parent. Right. Yeah. And then I'm curious, I want to get into your artwork, but I would love to hear about that, just how you were kind of fitting all of that together. I know. Oh, juggling Rebecca, you know how it is. I do. I just want to hear you tell us. Well, in one case, I have very close friends. They are living in Pasadena now, but they were in a nearby neighborhood in Brooklyn. So I had one, a couple days a week, I was going back and forth to SUNY New Paul's, the State University of New York in New Paul's, which was a two and a half hour each way drive from Brooklyn where I was living. So in one day I would drive for five hours and teach for six. Uh. And so I could never get back in time for making dinner for my daughter. So I had these wonderful friends and she would walk over to their house after school, they'd have dinner for her. That was for three and a half years, twice a week. Mm. They did that for her because she was a little kid, you know, and I wasn't going to be home. So I would just go pick her up once I got home at like, you know, eight o'clock at night. Mm. And that went on for those years. And in between those college gigs, I was doing the after school program and I would go to my studio. I had a studio in Williamsburg, Brooklyn at the time. It was a really, really dangerous and cheap, great studio space, but like, like mm. definitely not anything like how it is now. Yeah. And that's the place I'd ride my bike over there in the morning after I, you know, she went to school and I'd work until the early afternoon and come back in time for the after school program on the days when I wasn't teaching college. So, you know, just worked it out, just had to. Yeah. The studio was my mental survival. Otherwise <laughs> I was going to go nuts. Uh, yeah. And I know just from my experience and talking to other teaching artists that really piece together all these different jobs, the travel in between can be so wild, just taking so much time. Oh, I know. I was a bike commuter uh, and I did that in the city for almost 20 years going back to, you know, because teaching artists understand that the hourly wage is great, but it's very unusual to get enough hours at one place. Mm-hmm. I was going to like two or three schools a day and riding my bike to all of them in between. Uh, it, was a, it was a battleground out there. <laughs> so, uh. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I'm very happy I'm not doing that now. But I have to say, I'm sure the teaching artists listening understand this. You know, some of the gigs were really, really great. And some of them were just awful. Mm. You know, the ones that were great were wonderful. And the ones that were bad were just like, oh, yeah, Mm. I'm sure that everybody listening understands that. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the problems, any problems were never with the kids or very, very Mm. rarely with the kids. It was always the politics. You know, somebody signed a contract for me to come in, but it usually wasn't the teachers. Yeah. And then did you, I know when I was working with 
It was Brooklyn Arts Council that always had a planning meeting with whatever teachers were going to be participating. Uh So there would be that kind of setup where the teaching artists, the teachers, the principal, and like the nonprofit manager all kind of sit down together and talk through what this program is. It's supposed to be like that, Rebecca, but it wasn't always like that. And Brooklyn Arts Council, by the way, was my first nonprofit sponsor when I did my own after. Oh, amazing. Yeah, sure. We'll do it. Lorraine, somebody, she had big false eyelashes, I remember. (laughs) They were the first, but that, that is true. That's, that meeting is supposed to happen for each gig, but it did not always happen. And then I'd show up and be like, oh no, oh no, you're here. You're going to make a mess in my room, aren't you? Uh, You you want storage (laughs) space? Well, I don't have any. (laughs) There was like this kind of hostile thing where you had to, you know, had to kind of work it to wind up establishing some kind of relationship with the teacher just to make the residency go better. Yeah. So I was there, I was at Brooklyn Arts Council as a program manager and then was started teaching like one day a week. I was teaching just a little bit there. Yeah. And I definitely saw times where, you know, we would have that meeting and everybody would say hello okay we sign off but then just being on top of any of those issues like if you know the teaching artist comes in and she's like yeah I met you you know remember we talked about this (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah we had this one school just a couple years back oh it was really really rough we're supposed to have this second grade teacher is supposed to be with us it was an after school residency for second graders and the teacher is supposed to be with us and (laughs) She looks in the room. We never had a meeting with her, nothing. She peeks in the room. She sees we've got all these big canvases laid out and all kinds of paint and stuff for the kids. She has worn this beautiful leather suit to school, like a leather suit, right? The jacket and the pants that match. Obviously, really expensive clothes. And she peeks in the room and that's it. That's the last time we saw her. She never showed up. You know, we're not, we're supposed to be with her because we're not, right. we're not certified teachers and right. we're, she never showed up. <laughs> uh, yeah she noped right out of there yeah, no, <laughs> she was no. like uh-uh yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah, my clothes are gonna be right yeah so yeah but you know on the other hand I did have some really I had a couple of teachers working with me who were so wonderful and mm-hmm. just like dream you know dream I, I came into one school and it was a sixth grade a school only for the sixth grade the whole other mm-hmm. building was for everybody K through five and then they had a separate building only for sixth grade the woman in mm-hmm. charge of that building was amazing and I came in to do um, I had the city project that I did a lot of schools where we did a big floor map of the city you know like an, an aerial view and then they built little buildings to go on the city and they loved it. It was mm-hmm. a long, you know, long-term project. So I had this one teacher who was a great teacher and I came in to do that and she goes, listen, you know, we're working on Western expansion. Do you think instead of doing a contemporary city, could you do it like a settlement village with my kids? Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, sure. And she was one of those teachers who really wanted to do art in her room, but she never had time and she didn't have the materials and she tried to do a couple little things. You know, she really wanted it. And that's the perfect situation for a teaching artist when they mm-hmm. they understand that that's what they need to do and want to do but they just can't do it and they need somebody to come in and facilitate that and mm-hmm. she was one of the best people I worked with she really appreciated that experience for her kids because it helped them you know learn the subject better she was a, a fantastic mm-hmm. experience and then in one school I was hired to come in and this was a special needs class it was only about 12 kids and I worked the entire year with that class and the, the teacher was a wonderful ex-Marine, so like very strict, but very kind with her children. And she and I sat down at the, just a meeting between the two of us, and she went through her whole textbook, every chapter, and said, I've always wanted to do something like this. Do you think we could do something like with Indian jewelry, or do you think we could do something with African masks? And she just kind of laid out her list of dreams that she always wanted to do but couldn't do. And then I came up with projects for them. And that was a great experience because the kids loved it. You know, I loved it. She was great. There were paras in the room, so like a lot of adults. And those were the kids who, you know, they might have had a lot of struggle with reading or math, but they understood how to do an art process. They got it immediately. And then like 
flew with it and were so good at it. It gave them a lot of confidence, I think, to, you know, for their other subjects they were trying to learn. Yeah. And I feel like I've heard that again and again, and I've seen it too, where kids that maybe don't have other places where they can shine, having that opportunity to shine in the arts is transformative. Oh, yeah. And did you ever bring your own artwork into the classroom? Like, did you share your art making with students? I shared techniques, especially Mm -hmm. techniques techniques I learned, like working on scenery, you know, for the opera and rock and roll. I shared a lot of stuff like that. My own artwork, no, I... No, I didn't want to do that, but I I definitely Mm -hmm. tried to come up with projects that I just thought would be fun and interesting. I I did like pen and ink, ancient map making with kids. Mm. You know what I brought into the classroom? Not so much my own studio practice, but a lot of my, like I was teaching art history in college and I brought Mm -hmm. in a lot of projects based on those kind of things to the kids in school because I thought, you know, like cave painting, making Paleolithic era, small mm-hmm. objects, carving things, you know, that kind of stuff. A lot I'm I've in my own practice I have a real strong love of materials mm-hmm. and techniques yes. and then I apply those to whatever my concept is. So that is what I brought in. Not my own artwork, but my own mm-hmm. ideas about materials that are fun to use and techniques that are fun to use for what they wanted to learn. And at one point, mm-hmm. I always had a really, I was compelled by the work of the Bread and Puppet Theater, the people in Vermont. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're always the, the first part of the um, the Halloween parade through Greenwich Village in New York every year. So I went and volunteered to be in one of their shows so that I could learn the way they did their stuff. They always rented a theater in New York for part of a year, every year. And I went and was an extra in one of their shows so I could see what they did. And then I brought that into a classroom. And oh my God, that was such a fun project. The kids were sixth graders in a middle school out in East New York, and they were studying Greek mythology. So I said, we're going to make these giant puppets as the gods and goddesses for your Greek mythology chapter. So we did it like the way the Bread and Puppet Theater did. These kids, so sixth grade, right? They all made these puppets like their alter egos. (laughs) And it was hilarious, like big boobs on them and like, you know, the big eyelashes and all the things their mothers would never let them do to themselves. They did it to these puppets. Rock and roll guy, one god puppet had a guitar so he could play rock and roll and electric guitar. You know, it's just like, whoa. You know, they just like let it rip with that one. It was hilarious. That's amazing. And we had these giant puppets that they were like having to move up and down stairs to go to some storage closet every time I was done with that lesson. Oh, I love that. That was one of the funniest. (laughs) Yeah, that's amazing. And then do you feel like you're teaching influenced your art making at all? Did it, I don't know, did it come into your studio practice or were they kind of separate? You know, not really my teaching. It was more Mm -hmm. like like I was saying, like a lot of uh, subjects in art history that I used in my teaching were things Mm -hmm. that influenced my own work too. So it wasn't so Mm -hmm. much, I mean, it was, I guess, because of my teaching that I was needing to research those kind of subjects, especially art Mm. historical stuff that has come into my own work a lot, but not so much my class, not so much like my experience in the classroom, more my experience with research. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And would you want to share a little more about your work? Maybe to start visually, could you describe it? And I will point to your website and share some of your work so people can see it. Oh, thank you, because I just redid my website. Oh, good. I'm glad you're the the page of recent work has my, you know, I've moved to a little tiny village in the mountains of central New Mexico now. And so when I I moved to New York, I didn't want to live there, but I had to go there for family circumstances. Mm -hmm. And I went looking for materials there and I couldn't find 
I, I, you can't go to scrapyards mm-hmm. there. It's, you know, there's like a mountain of stuff with a, a backhoe and a Doberman mm-hmm. pincher. And, you know, you can't go into these. I had always shopped in places like that when I lived in California, when I lived in Kansas City and Texas. That's where I shopped for materials or demolition yards. And in New York, you, you can't go there. It's They don't want the liability of people walking into those places. So I started picking up stuff. Off. I had no money. And like I told you, very little time to work mm-hmm. on stuff. So I started picking stuff up off the street and dismantling it and using that as my raw materials. And I, I that became my aesthetic for years when I lived in the city. So it wasn't it wasn't figurative work, but it was it was about it referred to people and their things. Mm-hmm. It, it was not figurative, but it referred to people and the stuff that they wore or they sat in, where they slept. But here in the high desert mountains, I'm living in a place where people are a very minor component mm-hmm. of this, of anything. And so I've gone out right around where I live and I just started picking up you know, parts of the plants and the things that are around me. And that's the work that I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel excited about it and happy about it. I'm not exactly sure where I'm going with it, but these, you know, in terms of discarded materials, it's not about, I don't want to get into this like rusty metal stuff that's all over mm-hmm. the, no, that's not, you know, I want my work to reflect the feeling of the place I'm in. That's really important mm-hmm. to me. And that's been my motivation, where my ideas have come from all along. And that that's what I'm trying to bring to the new work. So if you go to the recent page of my website, that's the work. That's the, the stuff that I'm working on now. And that's really important to me. So in the city, it was a lot about people and their stuff and, you know, political situations and just situ- emotional situations that I mm-hmm. was in. And now it's really, I just want it to be a reflection of being in this kind of wild, really a wild place where nature is predominant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can see that change, that shift to more natural materials, you know, looking at your work. Yeah, thank you. So that was my purpose. And, you know, and then sometimes I had a residency in Bolivia Mm -hmm. a couple summers back. So I was there for a few months. And, you know, it's a very, it was very amazing, ancient and uh, very enigmatic culture. They're really the Incas, uh, you know, except now that everybody's got a phone, but they they live still like the the Incas did. And uh, the women particularly were complete mystery to me. I did some teaching workshops. I put myself into a situation in a little mountain town where there was a weaving cooperative and I wound up doing some teaching workshops with the women there. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't understand what was going on with the women. And I really couldn't make any work about being there until about a year later. I didn't want to make work that was kind of trite or just, you know, like first impression or cliche, you know, but there were these big, strong, tough women all over, you know, in public a lot in the marketplace. And then it turned out they just had like zero autonomy at all because whatever money they made, they handed over to the men in the family. And then Mm. like I was teaching these older women, they all had like eight kids. Uh. They didn't want to have them, Mm. but they they knew about birth control, but they couldn't afford it. Mm. So you know, it was like now they were older and the weaving they were doing and the drawing workshops I did with them and the puppet making workshops I did. That was like the only time they got to have any fun at all. Mm. You know, the rest of their lives was like hauling laundry back and forth to the river and just like, you know, just grunt work was mm-hmm. their day. And so their art making was anyway, I made this piece called Poyera that is on that page about my experience there. But it, I just it took a long time to kind of process mm. just what it was like there or what was going on with them. So I think, you know, when it comes to making art, it's important to give yourself enough time to really don't rush, you know, just let it kind of sink in. And then when you really need to make the work, Mm -hmm. that's when you make it, not just for the heck of making something. That's you and I both know that in terms of the time we have for our own work, Mm -hmm. just you don't make work until you need to. Hmm. And then that that work is the good work. Yeah. And then it just flows out. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. It flows out. And if you get to a point where you're stuck and you don't know what to do next, don't do anything. Mm. <laughs> you know, like have a couple things going at the same time. So you don't you never feel like it's not like a job where you just have to finish mm. it. No, wait, <laughs> you know, wait, it'll come to you. Yeah. And you're not going to mess something up. Huh. And do you sketch or journal or like I think of with sculpture, I think almost of especially sculpture with 
you know, almost like this assemblage of all these different materials. Do you ever kind of play with the materials before really attaching them as a form of sketching? I only, you know, I, I have to tell you something. Yeah. I really believe in drawing. Mm-hmm. I have a strong belief in the, that drawing is important, but for, I, I have a hard time doing it myself. Mm-hmm. I have to make myself like uh, the, the times I've done the most drawings is when I'm in a situation where I do not have a studio to work in, to build anything or to make my sculpture. And then I need to draw because I have to be, I need to be working on something. And I like to go out with, um, I use crayons. I use those China markers mm-hmm. a lot and I'll go draw the landscape from observation. I really love doing that. But when I have a studio to work in, I feel like I, it's hard for me to settle down. I, I like my work in my studio because it's very physical mm-hmm. and it's hard for me to settle down and concentrate on drawing, even though I am teaching drawing in college and I do believe in it. So right now, the only time I do draw, if I get into a problem and I can't figure out what I want to do, how, something's not working. So then mm-hmm. I start drawing out how to solve the problem. I don't draw in the beginning because I usually have an idea in my head and I try not to make it a really distinct idea. I just mm. I have a, an idea and a feeling that I want to communicate and I start working with the materials and I play a lot. You, assemblage is correct. That's what I'm doing. And I, I play a lot with putting things together and laying them out and leaving them for a while and looking at them and mm. thinking about some other thing and using some other thing. And uh, so one of the hardest things I'm dealing with now is, you know, I, I lived in New York almost 30 years and then I moved and I got rid of a lot of my collections of just stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, so now I'm like, oh, I know that would be just perfect, but oh, oh no, I don't have that anymore. Oh shoot. So, you know, I'm, I'm sort of trying to, anyway, I don't have, like I had like lots of stuff I had collected that I used uh. as my, my source materials, but okay. All right. You can't move everything. You know, I moved across the country. You can't bring it all. So I didn't. And so some of that is, a little, oh, that's okay. I felt like, okay, just think differently about mm-hmm. the work, you know, collecting other kinds of stuff. You're in a different place now. It's gonna, not going to be the same yeah. thing. So dr- anyway, drawing back to your question, drawing is something I've used now just to sort of work out some problems with my sculpture, but I don't start with a drawing and I don't know how painters do it. For all you painters out there, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you start with a blank space and create space from that. I'm so in awe of what you do because I feel like the materials I choose to use kind of help me tell me what to do. You know, when you start with nothing, I don't know how you do it. (laughs) I'm amazed. (laughs) Uh, I feel like that sort of awe and, you know, looking at how someone else works and being sort of in awe of what they're doing goes both ways, though. Like I look at sculptors and I'm like, how do you, you know, how do you come up with these forms and kind of put things together this way? Yeah, 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 I know. (laughs) But anyway, just a shout out to all you painters like, wow. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And then I also totally relate to that, like necessity is the mother of invention. (laughs) It is. And honestly, it really to tell you the truth, it's really true. I had a teacher way back in Kansas City, and I remember seeing Joan Livingston. She's a wonderful fiber artist who makes stuff out of felt. And I said something to her like, "Well, I don't know. I guess I'll just. I guess I'm going to do this next." And she goes, "You guess you're going to like if you if you don't know why you're doing it, then don't bother because." Mm-hmm what you have like a lot of extra time no <laughs> you know like only be working on things that you really feel strongly about because otherwise we'll do something else mm, yeah yeah I totally feel that yeah especially with the juggling act that most mm-hmm. teaching artists are doing with you know family and job and oh, studio practice no come on you know that's it's not just for the heck of it I have to say the work that I think the work I did when my daughter was little I had almost no time I was completely mm-hmm. broke I was struggling with all kinds of things. And I think that's some of the best work I've ever done. I just mm. had to do it. I had to do it to just keep myself okay. Yeah. And and that work was some really strong work that I showed. I showed my work with Ivan Karp at OK Harris for years and, you mm. know, felt really lucky that he was such a big supporter of mine. Mm-hmm. How did that relationship or other kind of relationships with galleries come about? How do you nurture those? And really the question is, what advice would you have about working with galleries and curators? Well, here's some things I've learned that I have found extremely valuable, and I only really learned them recently. Well, Ivan, you know, he is a historical figure in New York, and mm-hmm. at the time, he would look at slides. He could Anybody could send him slides, mm-hmm. and he would 
consider them. And that was, it's, it's even now very, very rare because he mm-hmm. didn't have to know of you or hear of you or anything. If he liked the work, he came over. Mm-hmm. Uh, luckily, a friend had told me his studio visit is going to be two minutes long. Okay, don't worry about it. It's going to be two minutes long. And it was, it was two minutes long. Oh. He'd been in business for a really long time. And he walked around for two minutes and said, I'm going to give you a show in October. It's like, okay. Oh. <laughs> I mean, you know, wow. he knew, he just knew mm-hmm. whether he felt strongly about the work or not. Mm -hmm. But what I've learned that I think would be valuable to other people is I wound up showing in a gallery in the Lower East Side for the last few years before I moved away from New York. And I became friendly with the owner there. And she said to me, listen, I have this business and I have openings and I have shows up and I expect people to be part of my community. You know, I want people Mm -hmm. who are going to and look at the work and come to the openings and hang out. And then when they come and ask me to look at their work and consider it, I want to. But when people come in off the street who've just read about my gallery, I've never met them and they've never been part of my community and they want me to look at their work, I kind of feel like, why should I? And that made a big impression on me. And I thought, I think that's how a lot of people in the art business feel like you need to show up and to show that you're interested in the work that they're showing and you're interested in them and their community that they've created. And then they're going to be more willing to consider your work Mm -hmm. after you kind of established a track record with them. And so having moved to a new place, I mean, I started doing that when I first moved November 2019. And then everything shut down because of I actually went back to New York February last year, I was in one of the big art fairs Mm. in New York, which was like the last thing that ever happened. The day I got back is when they started shutting everything down. And it was just a really incredibly lucky. There were thousands of people at the art fair, nobody wearing a mask. Nobody knew about anything, mm-hmm. no really big awareness of COVID in the United States. And then anyway, so that I had, it was a great experience to be in that art fair, but I had started to try and build up uh, visiting galleries in um, Albuquerque and Santa Fe for myself here. And then everything shut down, but I've started, you know, started it up again. And mm-hmm. I do have a couple pieces about to be in a show in Albuquerque. And I really took that advice of my friend in the Lower East Side to heart. Mm-hmm. And I've, you know, gone to the the, now that things are starting to be, there's an outside space, you know, just, just establish a relationship with the people before you ask them to look at your work. Mm-hmm. Just show up, you know, if, when you can show up, right, you know, r- be on Facebook with them, go to their openings, if it's virtual or in person, mm-hmm. you know, like, and understand what kind of work they're showing and whether your work fits into that space, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's going to be appropriate for that place. It's not for, you know, everybody's work is like, there's a certain couple of places that it might be good. It's not for every place. Right. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. I know it's something I've struggled with. I feel like it's almost easier now that, you know, it used to be that all the openings, even though I'm like a mile away from all these amazing galleries, the openings are like during my daughter's bedtime and yeah, of she course. needs well, me. That was, exactly. <laughs> See, that was what happened with me too. And so mm-hmm. Ivan told me years ago, he goes, listen, you know, your work is not for everybody. It's a very select kind of audience that's going to mm-hmm. like this. My advice to you is go to every opening, talk to everybody, and that's how people are going to get to know you. But I was in the same exact spot. I had a young child. I was the Mm -hmm. only parent. I couldn't do that. So that definitely was not a, you know, it wasn't a good thing for my career. It really, you know, schmoozing with people is important, but I never had time to. And it's not really my strength. I mean, I'm really good at working in the studio and I'm good at a lot of stuff. But I, you know, once I started knowing more people, then I felt okay doing that. But to walk into a room full of strangers Mm -hmm. was always pretty hard for me. And, you know, it took almost 20 years of living in New York to for me, me to feel like I was comfortable in the art world there because then I always knew somebody, you know, in that room yeah. after that amount of time. But, you know, I was in the same spot. I, I had a young child. I couldn't go out to those things. And it, it honestly wasn't that good for my work. Mm. You know, and my work was good, but, you know, I just didn't know enough people. Yeah. I had started before everything kind of shut down. I had started trying to, you know, I'm like, I can't go to the opening, but if it opens on a Friday night, I can usually like take my daughter with me on like Saturday afternoon and go look at the work and (laughs) maybe try to talk to, you know, the gallerist or the attendant who's there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing is it took me a long time to just not be afraid to talk to those people. Mm -hmm. But after a while, I thought, 
okay, look, for one thing, the attendant is like somebody who just got out of college. Right. They need a job too, you know, but I have to say, you know, moving here, like everything is so much smaller. It's so much easier. Hmm. I moved to my town. I didn't know anyone, the little place that I live now. I heard contacts. I didn't know anybody, but I, I had had the Roswell Artist in Residence grant many years ago, and that was a really fantastic grant in southeastern New Mexico. So that was like my New Mexico connection. So I went there to stay when I, I didn't know where I was going to live. And I anyway, the guy there, the director right now, gave me some, he goes, well, you know, you might want to check out this place, a little town in the mountains, a bunch of artists live there. So he gave mm-hmm. me some connections. Anyhow, I went there looking around for finding and trying to find a place to live. And I, I talked to some of his connections. The one woman is wonderful, has a gallery down the road for me, and she's a transplanted New Yorker from a long time ago. Uh. And she said, well, you know, Albuquerque, you can check out this place, this place, or this place. So I go up to the one gallery that she recommended. And the guy was very friendly. And I said, hi, I'm Judy Richardson. I've recently moved from New York and I'm a sculptor. And he goes, uh, oh, I'd love to see your work. I'm like, whoa. And uh, I go, well, I have some things in the back of the car. Do you want to look at them? He goes, yeah, sure. Bring them in. <laughs> oh my God. So I, I bring in, I didn't, this would never happen in New York in a million no. years. So I bring the work in. Oh, I love this stuff. Great. So he's, uh, his place is called Exhibit 208. And his name is Kim Arthen, and I'm showing my work with him. He's a really friendly, wonderful guy. He's running a place with his wife, retired high school principal, uh-huh. right? So she's extremely organized, and they have a brewery next door and mm. a beautiful outdoor space in the back so people can still go there even now because you can be separate from other people and have your drink and just hang out. So it's taken me years to build up the confidence to just talk mm. to these gallery people, but they, they will talk to you. Mm. You know, even even in New York, if you can, even little by little, if you show up, if you start showing up at, you know, little by little, like you said, even if it's on a Saturday afternoon, even if you have your child with you, it doesn't matter. If you start showing up and paying attention to their work and asking some questions or making some comments, they will start to recognize you. And then if you come with your work, they will be much more willing to give you a chance to just look at it. And, you know, I mean, it's it depends. For people just starting out, you got to start out at some like smaller alternative spaces. And then, you know, those big gallery people will come and look at work in those places. They will. Mm-hmm. I sold work years ago. At, I was showing my work at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art Rental Gallery in Fort Mason. I, I wound up selling work to a big time collector, Rene DeRosa in Napa. He came and bought work out of there. Mm-hmm. So you just never know. You got to start out where people are willing to look at your work and then it can go up from there. Yeah. And I feel like you're getting at this relationship building that's something I feel like I talk a lot about with students, but it's true with anybody, you know, that you have to... Of course it is. You know, that's yeah. how the world works. It's like, you know how it is. You you have a friend, you know, somebody asks you, well, you recommend your friend. Mm-hmm. Of course you do. The ones that come to mind are the names that come to mind. The images that come to mind are, are those that you know. Of course. Mm-hmm. And that's the way the world works. So, you know, and, and then it's, things are then more friendly and more fun. You just got to get over the... Um, Anyway, it's it's something you can it doesn't happen by magic. It happens mm-hmm. by little by little. You start to feel more comfortable with them and they start to feel more comfortable with you. That's kind of how it goes. Yeah. And I'm seeing maybe even more opportunity in some ways with the pandemic and more things being online where, yeah. you know, there's all these online spaces popping up, but there's also the, all of the in-person spaces are adding like online components. So I feel like it's easier for me and for maybe other people that have young children or that just have other limitations to be able to, you know, like I can put my daughter to bed and then go attend a Zoom opening event. (laughs) Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've been in a bunch of online exhibits since the shutdown has happened. And one, well, one was uh, such a wonderful experience because it was a good friend of mine, a long, lifelong friend from the Bay Area, organized a show of political art, politics holding Mm -hmm. the line was the name of it. And it was a a show, a political show before before this election, right last year, mm. of mainly Bay Area artists. But these were artists who were like lifelong 
political artists in San Francisco, some of the people who did the original murals and the mission and posters and people who have dedicated their whole lives to this endeavor of, of making political work. And then so the opening on Zoom was like, oh, my God, these are like these people mm-hmm. just getting to talk with them at the opening. It's like my I was like, wow, you know, these are these, you know, famous amazing people who have been so dedicated to this cause their entire careers as artists and there they were on the same zoom meeting the same zoom opening that I was in for this show so great Mm, yeah amazing so that's a way you know that might be like you're saying it might be easier to do that than to be in a room with them like oh I don't Mm -hmm. know if I should talk to them but you know there they were on the screen right with me yeah yeah I definitely like I still feel nervous even you know these interviews I'm nervous (laughs) but it's a little easier yeah yeah yeah. and I think that getting over that is very important I mean you know uh, most artists that I know would just rather be in their studios working and Mm -hmm. I did I did have some people I I was in graduate school in New York City at uh, School of Visual Arts. And I have to say, there are a few people in there who I didn't really like their work that much, but man, were they ever good at the PR component? I mean, like seriously good at getting their work out and getting it shown and getting on the you know, talk shows and all, I mean, I'm serious, like some heavy, heavy stuff. That was sort of like, I thought maybe that's their art is that's where their talent is. Right. You know, really up front in a very public way with stuff. And I, I felt like they were two separate things. When I, when I first got to New York, I met some artists who were so friendly and generous with their time. I wound up being studio mates with two people like that. Jude Talshay, Matt Friedman, just fantastic, you know, very just gracious, you know, and I I thought, okay, this is a way that you can be. You can, you don't have to be some snotty, you know, snobby kind of person to be good at your work and be out in the art world. You can be somebody who's friendly and helpful and that's the way. And a lot of artists are like that and that's the way to meet other people and to be part of the community. Mm -hmm. So that was very, meeting people like them really had a big impact on me. Yeah, that makes such a difference to have those. I feel like I'm getting better and better at kind of (laughs) putting myself out there and making those connections. Of course, people will like you, you know, and you'll like them. And then that's how, and then that's who will, somebody is curating a show, of course, they're going to invite you. Or, you know, somebody asked, do you know anybody who makes work like this? You know, and that's mm-hmm. how it works. Yeah. I became friendly years back with a curator in New York who's now been a longtime friend, Karen Shaw, who is the curator of the Islip Carriage House out in Long Island. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, she wound up knowing everybody. And then she put me in all kinds of shows and recommended mm-hmm. me for, you know, different connections with other people. So sometimes it's just like there's a few people you can meet who become very instrumental in that way and you know you like them you're not just friends with them because you have to be you really are friends with them and you know you like hanging out with them and you like the work they do with like the work they're choosing for shows and then it's just more of a natural thing than some forced kind of like oh I don't know you know yeah you know those people become your friends and and then it's it just makes things a little easier yeah and it just takes having that first conversation or you know now maybe that means like sending that first message and being nervous but kind of getting through it. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I would I would love to throw you just some kind of fun wrapping up questions. One, very broad, what are you curious about right now? Oh, well, I'm very curious about what how the world is going to be once mm. it gets be safe again because I think it's going to be like the Roaring Twenties. Just mm-hmm. a guess, but I didn't really ever understand that that's what the Roaring Twenties were, mm-hmm. right? Because the Roaring Twenties were after the nineteen eighteen pandemic. I never understood that because I never learned anything about the pandemic in school huh. or anything. But I think it's going to be like this huge resurgence of every kind of creativity because I don't know about you, but I've been doing a ton of work in the studio during, I mean, sure, it's great. I have more time because I'm not working so much, but just to be, I don't get these people who say, oh, I'm, I feel so stressed and I can't make any work. This is a great time to make work. Mm-hmm. This is to the time, you know, so I think there's going to be a huge, huge, huge wave of every, all these people who've been like composing 
music and writing poetry and and prose and making artwork is going to be like this is like let the floodgates open so i'm really mm-hmm. curious to see how all that's going to play out because i think it's going to be an explosion of stuff coming out after this mm. yeah i can see that too and even you know it makes me think of all the sort of parties and <laughs> just everybody coming together after this oh yes there's going to be such a craving for that Mm -hmm. so i'm really curious to see how that's going to go how that all is going to is i think it's going to be wonderful Mm -hmm. yeah and then fun question what is your favorite food peanuts (laughs) (laughs) i'm a bike rider you know i still ride my bike everywhere and those that's my energy food i buy the like the peanut butter stock the stuff they grind up to make peanut butter Mm -hmm. really good And I just, without them, I couldn't get through my day, you know, like that's how I have my energy. Yeah. Do you do them like roasted or salted or just really sort of simple? I buy the, I buy that peanut butter stock, which is already roasted. Uh It doesn't have anything, no process, nothing, no chemicals, nothing, just, you know, just handful of them. And I can just keep going. I can work and I have a lot of physical energy and that's why I guess why I'm a sculptor and I can Mm -hmm. work until late at night. And so, yeah, that's that's what keeps me going. Yeah. Oh, and you just that just reminded me that, you know, thinking about the energy and I saw on your resume, you know, you talked a little bit about being a welder, uh-huh. but you know, just looking at your the resume and the dates on there that you were a park ranger and then a welder <laughs> in yes. the 70s. And yes, just, yeah. I'm curious how that was. I was a welder at that scenery shop I was telling you about. And yeah. I was such a bad carpenter, but I was such a good welder that the, that was my only salvation was like, I kind of saved, they were doing flater mouse with, um, you know, there's a jail scene and like whoever they had before burned the bars of the, you know, they had to have bars across the windows and they didn't know what they were doing. So they burned them all and I, I came in and fixed uh. it. So that was, yeah, I learned how to weld in Kansas City and it's been a very, very handy skill to have. And then, you know, my my connection to the Southwest where I am now is because mm-hmm. I had a gig at Bryce Canyon uh, when I was in college. I did a season there and then I did a season at Wupatki National Monument, which is the ancient Anasazi ruins in a park that's about 40 miles northeast of Flagstaff, right below the Painted mm-hmm. Desert. And I gave tours of those ruins and that had a really, really huge effect on me and my work. And it was a mm. wonderful job. So I have done a lot of exploring of the Southwest, especially during those times. And here I'm back again to do it again. So I really love this part of the country and I feel mm. extremely lucky to be here. Yeah. And now do you get to, do you get out to those oh, parks? Yeah. Not those specific parks, but I mean, but I live parks. in a place that's I live right by gigantic forest and lots of mm. open public land and have been every week. I That's part of what uh. I love about living here. I'm I'm in my studio. I'm teaching my college class and I'm just, uh, I'm with a farmer. So I'm like part farmer now uh. and the rest of the time just cruising out into the, the arroyos and mm. mesas and the mountains. And it's one of my, it's a very inspirational to me and it has a, a huge impact on my, my mental state and on my my art making and I just need that that open space and the rocks and I swear I maybe should have been a geologist it's just Mm -hmm. there's so much great stuff here yeah but I love that how I feel like most artists have that there's something else like you know you'll say I I should have been a biologist or I should have been a geologist or you know whatever that like interest is that kind of keeps you going totally and you know when I worked for the park service one of the best things about it well I lived at the park so that was one of the greatest things because you're then you're Mm -hmm. already there but in the park service so you're working with historians biologists botanists geologists all these people who have their specialty and Mm -hmm. those people know the best places to go hiking Mm -hmm. they know the best places to recommend way out there places because they're you know they're not going to send you to another national park they're going to send you out to Mm -hmm. some wilderness area where there's some amazing springs or waterfalls or ruins or Mm -hmm. cliff dwellings that nobody knows about and you know that's is like really a great resource yeah that's amazing 
And then is there, before we kind of wrap up, is there anyone that you would want to thank or give like a shout out to? Oh my gosh. You know, so many people have been helpful to me. I, uh, a lot of them are not alive anymore. I guess, you know, there were, I had three different older men who were some of my greatest supporters and the most help to me. And none of them, they all had something kind of in common with each other, kind of a little bit wise ass, wise ass, you know, but, and they're all gone. And, and it was Renee DeRosa who was, the collector from Napa, California. I have work at his uh, it's a public sculpture garden now, and he was wonderful to me. And um, Ivan Karp, of course, the, the gallerist I told you about who showed my work for years at his gallery, O.K. Harris in Soho. He was one of the pioneers of Soho. And then Don Anderson just passed away this past year, and he was the patron mm-hmm. of the Roswell Artists in Residence grant who paid for that grant for over 50 years and supported mm-hmm. artists. He paid... You could live there. I lived there for a year and they paid for everything I did and my family so that I could work in my studio for a year and just do that. And that was the most, one of the most valuable. And I'm still very close friends with his wife, Sally Majette Anderson, and the people, my friends in Roswell, who were Nancy Fleming, director of the Anderson Museum, where I've got work, and the people running the Artists in Residence grant still, Larry Bob Phillips, who recommended Magdalena to me, where I live now. And just, you know, a bunch of great people who pushed me up and out of my, uh, you know, pushed me forward. Yeah. All of those people and just all the people that I'm friends with in New York and here in New Mexico have been so helpful to me. Amazing. Everybody. Yes. And last thing, where can listeners connect with you online? So my website is, are are you going to post the website or do you want me to? Yes, I will. I will link to it, but you can say it as well. Okay. That's www.judyrichardsonsculpture.com. Dot com mm-hmm. and I believe there's a contact for me on there so hit me up on there if you like I'm on Instagram a lot at Judy Studio J U D Y S T U D I O Judy Studio that's my handle on Instagram and I love Instagram for sharing my work with other people and I love that they're sharing theirs with me so that's a good place to hit me up too yeah amazing yes so I will link to both of those and thank you so much I feel like it was really so much helpful advice and just so great to hear sort of your story and all the experience that you have to share oh I hope so and thank you Rebecca and anybody who needs advice I have done a lot of stuff and if you need any advice about projects oh man yes I will be happy to help you I've done every kind of project with kids. So if you need any advice about how to do it, what kind of materials, how it went, I'm really happy to share that because we're like, I'm like Project Central over here. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can reach me at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram or teachingartistpodcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of teaching artists. And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you. Thank you.